so our first fe featured speaker will be uh, Anthony Jordan. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I'll just kind of set up the book a little bit before I'll read aloud from a chapter uh, in particular that, that I looked at. I don't want to give the book away. The book's name is Lead for God's Sake. And excuse all the orange post-it notes that you see here. I just I take a lot of notes as I read. Uh, it's actually one of our team's assigned readings um, as far as coaching. Uh, Coach Dressel does that from time to time throughout the year uh, to make sure guys are continuing to develop and, and look at different points of views and things of that nature. So um, looking at the title, just based off of what it is, Lead for God's Sake, you can kind of take it. You know, I was talking with Ben a little bit earlier about, you know, different ways of taking it, maybe even calling it a double entendre, you know, in, in that type of form. But uh, I'll kind of get to how it appears now and then what it will transform to uh, kind of after I get done describing it. Um, but basically the story is, is set. It's a character story on a, on a high school Kentucky basketball coach. I'm a coach, had a natural tie in there, so I went with it. But it actually really stems away from the game of basketball or sport in general. Uh, it's more about leadership and building relationships and, and faith and, and different elements to it. Um, but uh, as a background to the story, uh, he's a 42-year-old high school basketball coach that was a superstar basketball player in college. Now he's had tremendous success as a high school, again, basketball coach. And um, for all of his life, he's been able to be on top, be successful, uh, win, and, and, and do things. And, and now he's going into his third year at this particular high school. And he's had nothing but success, and this is supposed to be the best year yet. But yet still, they're finding trouble. They're having turmoil in, in the season. And, and as far as their de uh, dedication and commitment toward the team from their, from their guys. So uh, the coach is kind of going through uh, a phase here where he doesn't know which way to go. Uh, he's always used to him being able to put in the extra effort, put in the extra work, and, and, and command the results from his troops. And, and for whatever reason, it's not coming to form right here uh, as far as the early part of the book. Intertwined into the book is a couple different relationships, and I'll only highlight two of those because, again, it, it hits on many different angles. But one key, uh, one key relationship in the book is one with his uh, good friend, uh, and the book is named Grant Steffen. Grant Steffen is the CEO of uh, a multinational <coughs> corporation that uh, has done very, very well for himself. He's an Ivy League educated person, and, and their part, their relationship really takes form in the early part of the book. It's really a uh, a, a book of two phases, one with him and Grant, and then the next gentleman is, is uh, Joe Taylor, which is the school's janitor. janitor. Uh, and so uh, through the first phase of the book with this relationship with Grant, um, they're all about them. They're going through, they're in similar points in their lives. They're, they're the same age or middle-aged men, and, and they've always had success, and, and Grant being no, not the exception, and he has gotten to the same point that Coach has gotten to with his team, uh, his employees. They're not performing well. They're not putting in their day's work. They're always complaining, this, that, and, and, and other things. And so uh, they're, they always, they're having this conversation, uh, multiple conversations about how they can get the best out of their, their employees or their team. And it, again, the early part and the sentiment of the book in the early part is, we're doing all this work, I, 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 I'm doing this work, why aren't they responding? You know, why aren't the other people in, that are around me, why aren't they leading? Why aren't they being leaders that they're supposed to be? Uh, in, the coach, the case, in, the, in the case of coach, why aren't my seniors leading the group? Why aren't they doing what they're supposed to do? The coach, in the case of uh, Grant, the CEO, why aren't my employees doing what they're supposed to do? I'm paying them well. Uh, I'm giving them extra vacation days. I'm doing this. I'm, and so uh, 
not to take it much further than that, that's where they're at. It's about why aren't we getting the results? As the story moves along, the second phase that I look at is, is Joe Taylor, the, the janitor. He's kind of the, the popular figure amongst the school children. He, uh, you'll, you'll see him in the book. He'll talk about kids coming in and out of his office at 6 in the morning and, and whatnot. To just talk to Joe. And um, the one thing with Joe is Joe starts to have a, a, a constant communication with Coach, and they start talking about maybe some ways that you can uh, redevelop your your pitch to your kids and to your team. And, and as they go through it, uh, one of the first things, I'll back up just a, a half half second. One of the things that they have two main diagrams within the piece that, that kind of gives you the idea of what makes people succeed, okay? And this being the one, this being one of people's motivation, this kind of derived from Grant and Coach's conversation about, ah, what I'm doing all this, this is what I have to do to my troops. And the first thing about it, and this is literally what it looks like in the book as well, so it's just got my, my badge on. So this is what it looks like in the book. But uh, they talk about people are motivated by two different main factors, rewards and punishment. And in the rewards column, in Grant's case, he talks about the bag of money or, or giving people more uh, compensation or whatever it is. And in, in Coach's case, it's wins, wins and losses. So uh, as they feel like they succeed, they have to keep increasing the rewards in this to make people happy, and so on and so forth, exactly the same thing on the flip end for the, the punishment. They feel like at certain times we have to crack the whip and make sure that um, you know we have our troops or our employees in line. And those are two main ways. That's what they're focused on. That's what they're centered on. They, they won't budge. They either feel like they have to give more or they have to, they have to punish them more. And in Coach's case, the main character of the book, um, he feels like because this program has been successful and he's had a lot of wins and he's done a, a lot of tremendous things that um, I have to, he has to side more on the, the hatchet, what they call it. He has to side more on the punishment and it goes into his tirade and it goes into, uh, you know, basically him treating these kids uh, in, in, in a very temperamental manner and, and very poorly um, just to get the results that he wants. Uh, as the book goes on, there's another, and I'll get back into the next phase of the diagram, but that brings back Joe into it. And Joe breaks down this diagram. He has these conversations weekly, and it's over a three-month span about, uh, about what to do with this diagram, this rewards and punishment. And I'll kind of read from, from, from some sections in the book here, uh, particularly uh, the, uh, let's just, <clears throat> particularly the 17th chapter in the book. Flip to that. I have so many post-it notes here, I, I kind of confuse myself sometimes. There it is. Uh, influence and responsibility. Excuse me, guys. Sorry about that. <clears throat> With the thoughts of the upcoming week racing through his mind, Coach woke at 4.15 Monday morning and couldn't go back to sleep. Rather than waste time tossing and turning, he decided to get a jump on the week. Friday's win, his lack of contentment following the win and the loss of rent were still boggling in his mind. Brent was a guy that quit the team. He had some 
uh, internal issues going on. The coach decided not to get into it. He just thought he was quitting on him. And uh, that, that story is another storyline that really gives some insight to the story. But, um, and for some strange reason, he thought Joe Taylor might, just might know where he could start looking. Coach pulled, into it, pulled his car into the normal parking spot about 5 a.m. and breathed a sigh of relief when he noticed that the lights in Joe's office were already on. After struggling to find the right key to the gym, Coach unlocked the back door and walked quietly down the dark hallway toward the light coming from the half-open doorway to Joe's office. He walked up to the door to peek inside. At first, he didn't see Joe and wondered if maybe already off somewhere in the school fixing something. But when he poked his head in further, he found Joe sitting in the corner, deeply engrossed in whatever he was reading. Joe, Coach said softly, trying not to start him. Hey, Coach, how are you? Answered Joe in his normal, calm, caring manner. Pretty good, I guess. Is this a bad time? Never a bad time for a cup of Joe with a friend, replied Joe as he winked. He stood up and motioned for Coach to come and sit down. I was just doing a little brush-up reading on one of my favorite leaders. I see, said Coach, almost afraid to, to ask who his favorite leader was. You have, a, you have quite a collection of books, Joe. You must enjoy reading a lot. Now, Joe's office, just to give you a little background on this, Joe's office is not what you would picture as a janitor's office. It's a, a, somewhat a library, like you would see on any floor in this building with books, the shelves of books and a quiet reading corner, and, and it's somewhat different than what you would, at least I would picture in my mind as a janitor's office. Uh, not, so, not so much the reading part and the learning, as the learning and growing part, said Joe, chuckling as he walked over to the coffee pot and poured a cup for Coach. You know, I learned a long time ago that two things that most impact our lives are the people we spend our time with and the things we read. Yep, relationships and reading. Joe paused as he set the cup down on the table beside Coach and then turned to walk back to his chair. You know, come to think about it, God must have thought those two things were pretty important too. I mean, given the way he has set us, he has set us up to grow as a result of both those things in our lives too. Go figure. Sipping his coffee, Coach tried to figure out what Joe meant by a statement. That's true, I guess. Well, I guess I don't really know. I mean, well, I guess I've never thought of it like that before. Coach fumbled with his words a, a bit. He hadn't expected to have a conversation about God with Joe, especially not this early in the morning. Joe politely reassured Coach, oh, don't worry about it. Most folks don't think about it. They don't think about much anyway. So tell me, Coach, how are the boys doing? Are you making any progress with them? You know, with that hatchet treasure thing you've been working on? Coach squirmed a little in his chair. Well, to tell you the truth, that's kind of what I was hoping to talk to you about this morning. I mean, the whole thing is really getting a bit confusing to me at this point. What do you mean when you say confusing, Coach? Asked Joe, resting his arms on the worn-out armrest of the chair. Well, Friday night we won, and for some reason after the game, I felt miserable. I mean, it didn't really mean anything to me. It was almost as if winning my treasure wasn't motivating to me anymore. Coach trailed off discouraged. So you don't want to win this coming Friday, asked Joe? Well, of course I do, in the worst way. I spent probably 15 hours this weekend breaking down film. It sounds like winning still motivates you, so I guess I don't understand what you're confused about, Joe said, tilting his head as if a bit confused now himself. After pausing to think about what he was saying, Coach tried to clarify things. I guess maybe I'm more frustrated than confused. I don't understand why it seems like nothing really works this year. When Grant and I started talking about the hatchet and treasure thing at the beginning of the season, it all made perfect sense to me. I could really relate, and I really felt like I found the answer to the problems we were dealing with. Coach stood up and walked over to the whiteboard and pointed to the drawing still there from the week before. The players had become too used to winning, so when winning lost its motivating power, <clears throat> I had to compensate by instilling fear. Now I pointed to the hatch on the stick, stick man's right hand. I yelled, I screamed, I threw things, I ran them until they puked, I even kicked them out of practice, and it worked for a while. 
But eventually that seemed to wear off. Guys started to fighting more practice. They fell apart in a couple games that followed. Then the unthinkable happened. David, their star center, 6'9 center, committed to the University of Kentucky to play basketball, punched a lot, and that's what he was talking about. Uh, Joe sat silently, looked at Coach with sympathy in his eyes. Finally, after what seemed like an hour of silence, he stood up and walked over to the whiteboard. Coach, can I ask you a question? Coach headed back to his seat. Sure, why not? Lord knows I won't have the right answer, though. Joe stood and stared at the drawing with a stick figure. You see anything missing? Do you see anything missing from this picture? Uh, other than skillful artistry, no. I think it's a pretty complete picture, snap coach. Well, let's think of it another way then. Besides the obvious answer of leadership, what's missing with your guys right now? Coach thought for a few, a few seconds. They don't care about winning anymore. Okay, so they're missing the will to win, right? Joe wrote the word will on the, on the board. What else are they missing? Asked Joe, de determined to dig deeper now. Well, they don't care about their teammates, said coach. Okay, so they're missing the love for their teammates. Coach jumped in. Whoa. Love's a little strong, Joe, don't you think? I mean, these are high school guys we're talking about. Yeah, replied Joe, so do you want guys that like the game or love the game? Joe looked over his eyeglasses at Coach, looked, waiting for a response. Love, of course, Coach replied. Okay, you want guys who like to compete or love to compete, pressed Joe, sharpening his point for it. Okay, okay, replied Coach, throwing both hands in the air. I get your point, love's fine. Joe wrote the word love on the board underneath the word will and then turned back to Coach. All right, anything else? Joe was obviously fishing for something more. Well, I guess the only word that comes to my mind when I, when I watch them play is passion. They really lost their passion for the game. It shows big time. Great, said Joe, writing the word passion on the board. What do you mean great, asked Coach defensively. No, no, not great they lost their passion. I mean great that you figured out three key things they're missing. Joe walked over to his seat and sat down. Now look back at the stick figure on the board. Tell me, Coach, if you were a player on the basketball team, Missing those three things, will, love, and passion. And this was your coach. Which hand do you think would best help you find them again? Coach looked at the picture in silence, and he hesitantly took a stab at answering the question. I guess the treasure hand. Remember, said Joe, you've lost your will to win. That means for, that for some reason you really don't care about winning anymore. And the treasure is the equivalent to, to winning. That's your treasure, remember? So how will, how will more winning help you find your will to win, asked Joe. Guess it probably won't, Coach said. So I had a 50-50 chance of getting it right, and I missed it. Pretty true to form this year. Guess it must be the hatchet hand. Really? You sure, asked Joe? Coach shrugged his shoulders as if to say he wasn't sure of anything anymore. Let's say your son has lost his will to clean his room, if he ever had it in the first place. You tell him that if he doesn't clean it, he'll lose his PlayStation privileges. <clears throat> will, he, will he get his will to clean the room back? Of course, in a heartbeat, said Coach confidently. No, not really, Joe said in a corrective manner. You see, he'll clean it all right, but he'll, he'll clean it only because he still has his will to play PlayStation, not because he regained his will to clean his room. Truth be known, over time, he might begin to hate cleaning his room even more because not only is he doing something against his will, but what he is doing now has the potential to cause him even more pain by making him lose something he does have will for. Joe paused for a few seconds and let the concept sink in before taking that step further. What do you suppose will happen when the, with, with the room when you're gone for a couple of days, Coach? Think you'll clean it? Joe raised his eyebrows waiting for an answer. Not likely, answered Coach, knowing Brandon well. But when he knows you're coming home and bringing your hatchet with you, he'll clean, up, clean it up in a flash, won't he? Coach nodded in reassuring, in reassuring agreement. Don't misunderstand me, Coach. Punishment, discipline is not a bad thing. 
But if it's the only thing, or even the main thing, it will eventually do more harm than good. Think about this. If the hatchet is, on, is the only method you use to motivate your son to clean his room, how do you think he'll feel about cleaning his room, say, 10 years from now? He'll hate it. Really resent it, Coach said, as if he experienced this at some point in his life himself. So how do you think he'll feel about the person who held the house hatchet for all those years? Coach sat silently for a moment as if things were beginning to sink in. Probably pretty bad. Maybe even bitter or angry, he replied before leaning back in his chair and crossing his arms. Okay, I think I get your point, but what other options are there? I mean, at some point, you have to use the hatchet to get things done. Oh, yes, I know, and in fact, I agree. The hatchet definitely has its place in all of our lives. But if someone has lost their will to do something, a hatchet, though it might work in the short term, just won't work over the long haul, especially when it's used exclusively. After this, Joe goes over to uh, his picture of his, uh, of his sons on his desk and describes the relationship he's had with his sons and how he rewarded them for things they did positively or negatively. And the biggest thing he wanted to impress upon his sons were uh, if they worked together, uh, the positive things that came out of that, if they had the right means and the, the, the right intentions, the things that came out of that. Okay? Um, so, and I'll skip ahead to that point. Uh, the next word. Uh, with, in, in connection with this will was with love and, and so the love that my guys have lost really comes down to a choice asked coach in essence yes basically they're choosing not to love their teammates for, for reasons of, of their own it may be frustration selfishness or just plain old personality class but for whatever reasons they're choosing not to love one another coach pursed his lips and sighed as he considered the truth Joe had just revealed to him about his team so based on that premise, which hand on the stick man, which hand on the stick man do you think can help them find a love for one another? Again, asked Joe, grasping the concept much better now. Coach Al answered confidently, neither. You sure? asked Joe, giving him one more chance to think more deeply about his answer. Listen closely to my question, coach. Which hand can help them find that love again? Joe smiled, knowing well he was being a bit confused. Please understand, coach, there is truly a place where both hands can be beneficial to one growth, even in the area of love. Joe reached across his desk and picked up a picture of his two sons when they were in grade school. When my children were young, I occasionally rewarded them for working well and, and, and not for fighting. And it kind of went on to that, that past uh, segment I just told you about. As if coming out of a daze, Joe looked back up at Coach. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Now what I was saying, oh yes, punishing and rewarding my kids worked in the short, short run and it was the right thing to do. But over time, I had to make sure they began to see for themselves when making the choice to work together on their own. <clears throat> Coach stood up as if he was really starting to see the light now and walked over to the whiteboard. So although you used both hands to help them along, that wasn't really what pushed them over the top. What really pushed them was when they themselves began to, to see deeper benefits that come from loving one another. Exactly, exclaimed Joe. More excited now than Coach has ever seen them. The key thing to remember here is deeper benefits, because we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Okay, Joe continued, let's take the last one, but certainly not the least. And they talked about love, they talked about will, and the third one was passion uh, for ways of, of, of increasing the, the productivity of, of the group, of the team, of the CEO, or whatever it was. Okay, um, if you want to help your players find a passion for the game again, which hand will you use? Well, a little of both, I guess. Passion is a tough thing to force on someone, but there are times when a foot in the rear can inspire a burst of passion pretty nicely. A guilty smile came across Coach's face. Joe nodded in agreement and reiterated, a burst, right? Yeah, a short-term fix, Coach said reassuringly. And on the other hand, although you can't really buy someone's passion over the long haul, stop right there, interrupted Joe, leaning back in his chair and crossing his arms. Why not? 
I mean, I think I could be pretty passionate if you paid me a million dollars to come off the gym floor every day. Maybe, Joe. But over time, after I pay you the million, you go back to, you'll go right back to your old ways until I offer you two million, that is. Perfect. You hit the nail right on the head. It'll never be enough, will it? I'll always want more. There's a term for that. It's called greed, something our society is noted for, Joe said. So what's so dangerous about that on the team? Greed, greed built, greed selfishness. People become more concerned about what they can get for themselves than about what they can give to their teammates. A dangerous combination. And one I've become all too, all too familiar with this season, said Coach, feeling good about the progress of the conversation. Right. So now finish your original thought. Although you can't really buy someone's passion over the long haul, I was just saying that that the treasure, or in my case, winning, can inspire a short burst of passion. But over the course of time, you, meet, you need much more than that drive, than that to drive passion. Coach stopped as if to, uh, Coach stopped as if struck on the last point he made. Guess I'm not 100% sure I know what would drive passion over the long term, Joe. I mean, with my team, the guys have all lost it. And although I'm, I'm used to both treasure and the hatch to inspire a short burst of passion, I don't really see it in any of them right now. I guess you just have it or you don't. For the first time in a half hour, Coach felt dejected again. I guess if you really think about it, passion, love, and will are all pretty similar in the subject. There are things that come from within. You can't really force them onto anyone. They have to want it themselves from the inside out. Coach dropped his head as if he just realized his efforts were hopeless. He came all this way to find out that he couldn't fix it. He was struck with a bunch of selfish kids who had no will to win, no love for their teammates, and definitely no passion for the game. What was worse, he was convinced, having already worn, worn out both hands of the stick man, there was nothing else he could do to change it. It was now up to the players. They had to choose to change. Joe stood up and walked over to the board and briefly studied the illustration. Coach, I want you to look, look <clears throat> excuse me. Coach, I want you to look closely at this stick man because he represents the majority of leaders in our culture today. CEOs like your friend Grant, vice presidents, restaurant managers, even pastors, teachers, and parents. In fact, Coach, he's pretty an accurate depiction of you too. Yeah, but fortunately, I think you'll find that most leaders fall into this category at some point in their lives because most, most leaders have been and, and may continue to be heavily motivated by both these hands. And Joe almost whispered, what moves us most to action usually determines how we attempt to, to move others to action. And I'll read that again. What most moves us to action usually determines how we attempt to move others to action. And I'll kind of move along in this chapter because it is a lengthy chapter, but just to recap, the stick man figure, the hatchet or the rewards, the punishment or the, the, the treasure. The more you get out of either one of those, the more you have to put into them to get further results. And that was kind of what Joe was, was built into. And you have to instill the passion and the will and the, and, the, and the love, okay, that come from within to be able to have that over the long haul, the long term, which is what, uh, of course, any coach or any leader or any CEO would be looking for is, is long-term passion. And again, I'll skip ahead uh, a little bit, and I'll close the chapters about one more page. Okay. Okay. What's missing? I mean, the hands and feet are there, uh, but there's still one thing missing from this picture that pulls everything together. Do you see it? Joe asked excitedly as Coach stared at the picture with a blank look in his face. Let me ask you another way. What is it that connects the head and the hands that bring real life to the person? The heart, Coach explained. The heart, Joe reached across the center of the stick man and drew a big heart. Exactly. This guy is simply going through the motions until you add a heart. But once you add the heart, bam, he comes to life. Because the heart is the lifeblood from which everything flows. It is not only our internal pump and filter, it also is a conduit that allows us to connect with others. 
So if you want to truly lead others effectively, you must start by leading from your heart. Joe put the cat back on the marker he was using and made his way back to his chair. Okay, said Coach. This is great. It makes a lot of sense, especially in athletics. But now what? Well, now comes the tough part. What? Coach asked, astonished. You heard me. Now's the tough part because leading with the heart is not all it's cracked up to be. In fact, I might as well warn you right now, it's much, much more difficult, difficult than simply leading with the hatchet or the treasure. But I thought we agreed that the hatchet and the treasure don't work, asked Coach, sounding more confused now. No, they don't work the best over the long haul, said Joe, correcting Coach. Remember, they both work very well in the short run, but if you're looking for lasting effect, they just don't cut it without the heart, that is. It, it's, only when, it's only when they're all working together in proper proportion that things really begin to click. And that, that's very hard to achieve, said Joe. Fact is, very few leaders ever get it right, and even the ones that do struggle. They may try or they may, in some cases, look like they're trying, but when it comes down to it, most miss the true essence of what leading with the heart is really about. Joe opened a drawer to, death, to his desk and pulled out a yellow notepad. <clears throat> and then I'll, I'll kind of close the chapter with that. Uh, there's one last point, actually, uh, before I go there. There's one last point. Uh, that they set up another appointment, they talk about getting back together, continuing this conversation based off of love, will, passion. What else comes with this? What else comes with the treasure and the rewards? And, and great, great said coach. I'll be here. Thanks, Joe. You know, I really enjoyed this time, too. Coach grabbed his stuff and politely greeted Sarah as he headed through the doorway toward his office to start the day. As he walked down the hall, his head was spinning. What the heck just happened in there, he wondered. What is it about Joe that makes him so darn... Coach couldn't think of the term to accurately describe him. He was kind, smart, creative, compassionate. compassionate. He was like no other person he'd ever met before. And yet, he was a janitor. This guy should be teaching philosophy at some college. Coach thought to himself as he made his way back to his office. Now, again, not to give the, the book away in case anybody would ever want to read it. I won't get, get into too much more about it. But uh, the one thing I will show you is kind of what the, the drawing evolved from. We talked about the hatchet and the reward, the punishment, the treasure, and what it started with, with, with Grant and the CEO. And this is how you motivate people. And as they continued, as more as Joe talked with them and, and they discussed, it became about a, a lot of different things. And as, as I read in the passage, you know, the heart was a big part of that drove uh, what it is that we do, or anybody does for that matter, uh, to, to in, in our course. And, and I said in the bag of rewards, for coach, it was, a bat, it was basketball win, so there's a W in this basketball. But the key points in this thing was why? What is your purpose in life? Is it selfish? Is it, is it to help others? That why, that purpose, needs to direct out all these things. And, and only from within will will, love, and passion come. So if you're working in a, in a, in a uh, teamwork environment, you're, you're pushing your agenda as far as everybody together and for the better, the, the, not the self-centered purpose, that will be out to here. And it talks about embracing position and loving people and, and set priorities. The one last thing I kind of want to talk about, and at the top, again, they kind of discuss about what leadership truly is with influence and responsibility. Well, I picked the text, and I'll close with this. Well, I picked the text for a couple of different reasons. There's so many different talking points in this book that 15 minutes or 20 minutes couldn't give you enough time to go through. Uh, but exclusively, four main points I drew from this book. You're not just and from coaching. Again, this wasn't really about a basketball book to me or a coaching or athletic book to me. It was more about, again, leadership and, and building relationships and motivation of, of, of true rewards. And, and, um, and, establish, and one of the things that Joe really hits on later on in the text is uh, the power of an individual. And I think sometimes, you know, not knowing who I was going to address in, in, in this conversation, one of the things that 
really drew me to, to the fact that we're in the library, we're in an uh, academic setting, and, and there may be people that teach or, or what have you. Uh, the power of an individual that one person can have on, on, on a lot of different people. And this guy, Joe, um, was somewhat of a, you know, a, a forgotten point. He was a guy that was a janitor in the school building. That, you know, how many times do you think, do you associate a janitor with somebody being, somebody you go to talk to about philosophical issues and, and to figure out life's main issues and points and what the direction of life should take you? And so it brought up a couple of different points in my head. Uh, just recently, this last week, and I'm not going to get into the religion part of things, but I was attending church, and one of the things that really stuck with me, and one of the points of it, didn't, and I'll stay away from uh, the whole faith point, but what it was was how one individual can make a difference, and it doesn't have to be somebody chosen. So in this case, the, the person that should be the leader and, and should have all these answers, as you look at it, would be who? It would be coach. It'd be the guy that, that's most successful high school coach in, in, in Kentucky basketball history. It would be the guy that's done all these things at a, at a, at a superstar point guard. It would be that guy. But it, this ordinary, regular guy had this insight to help students and help uh, you know, coach along his way and, and, and drove those results with those people. And, and it jogged that point from church. And it also, it also came in three for me. I said I had a chance to look at Has anybody ever seen the, the movie, The Book of Eli? Has anybody? It, you're familiar with it, but it's basically about an average, would you agree, an average regular guy that does something spectacular. And I'm not going to give away the whole story and everything like that, but it's about what we do as individual people. And in my role, is, and again, uh, she said it earlier in, in the talk, I'm not Coach Tressel. I'm not one of the big guys, but what can, I can do and what I'm doing in my life right now to drive successful results and, and, and then affect positively <coughs> the people around me. And that's what I drew from the book that was important. And, and again, with how you reward and, and punishment and all that, that was a good uh, sentiment to that as well. But that was, that was a key thing I took from the power of one individual, what he can do, he or she can do, I should say. And, and, and that was it. But that was the book. And I hope I didn't run it for a whole lot of people. But I wanted to make sure you guys were good. Okay? Thank you. How many folks have heard of Don Giovanni? You know who that is? Who is Don Giovanni? No opera fans, huh? Who is Mozart? Let's start with that. Who is Mozart? Composer. You guys are allowed to talk. You're, you know, you don't have to be silent. Classical composer. Classical composer, and he wrote an opera called Don Giovanni, right? Who's Garrison Keillor? Does anybody know who that is? He does a weekly radio show called Show called The Prairie Home Companion, and. Uh, I don't know what you guys do on Saturday nights, but I love to listen to it, and he's also an author. He wrote a book called The Book of Guys, and I'm gonna read an excerpt from that book. It's a series of illustrative fables, and this fable is called Don Giovanni. Marriage takes too much out of a man, says the old seducer through a cloud of cigarette smoke. Marriage is an enormous drain on a man's time and energy. It produces continual deficits. It reduces him to silliness and servility. It is the deathbed of romance. Figaro, my friend, a man owes it to himself to stop and consider the three advantages of the single life. One, if you're single, you can think. Two, you can act. Three, you can feel. Probably there are other advantages, but those three are surely important, yes? Think about it. There is never a substitute for freedom, 
And there is no prison so deadly as a life of unnecessities, which is exactly what a marriage is. A woman takes over a man's life and turns it to her own ends. She heaps up his plate with stones. She fills his bed with anxiety. She destroys his peace so that he hardly remembers it. But even a married man knows what he should have done. You should find a cheap place to live. Who needs a mansion? You put your money in the bank and you furnish your place as you please with your own junk and great bargains from auctions. You come and go, you eat when you're hungry, you stay up late, you get drunk as it pleases you, and you have two or three terrific lovers who visit when you invite them and stay about the right length of time. Enjoy yourself, that's what we're here for. Some men should have two lovers, some three, it depends on the man, said the Don. Never limit yourself to one. Monogamy leads to matrimony, and marriage, my boy, is pure struggle. Of course the single life has problems. Having two lovers is a scheduling problem. And three is a real test of a man's organizational abilities. Yet these are the very problems a man hopes for. Living alone in a cushy old apartment with your friendly Jamaican housekeeper coming on Fridays to put a shine on things, the corner laundry delivering clean clothes on Wednesdays, and your girlfriends dropping by on various evenings, each of them crazy about you, anxious to please. You know how accommodating young women can be when they choose to be. Think of having three like that at once, their eyes alight at the sight of you, their lips moist, the flush of desire on their cheeks. Sound good? My yes. The Don smiled at the thought. No woman would accept such an arrangement. You would have to lie to her, said Figaro. Yes, certainly, said the Don. To lie to three women at once? To keep inventing stories about where you went? Is that nice? The girls who share my bed want to share my life, said the Don, and that would leave me no life at all. But to be so selfish, what if everyone were? What if your parents had been? I am selfish, Figaro because I have a larger capacity for pleasure than other people do. Pleasure is only a hobby to them, but to me it is a true vocation. The joy of eating a sumptuous meal in the company of a sharp-tongued sharp woman who secretly adores me, who argues with me and ridicules my politics and my ideas, the things I don't really care about, and who in a couple hours will lie happily next to me, damp and drowsy, smiling. This, to me, is the beauty of male existence. As for my parents, well, they did isn't my responsibility. Figaro had dropped in to see his old friend at the Sportsman's Bar in Fargo, North Dakota, where the Don was engaged for three weeks to play the piano. Figaro had moved to Fargo with Susanna shortly after their marriage, and Figaro had not laid eyes on the Don since he had attempted to seduce Susanna on their wedding night, one of those cases of mistaken identity in dimly lit places, so Figaro bore no grudge. The Sportsman's Bar was an old dive near the Great Northern Yards, where the switching crews liked to duck in for a bump of whiskey on their coffee breaks. It was not a place you would bring a woman. Figaro thought, and any woman you might find in there is one you wouldn't want to learn more about. The little marquee out front said BBQ Beef Eswich, $1.95, happy hour, four to six, two drinks for price of one, D. Giovanni, and Hunter's Lounge nightly. When Figaro stepped into the gloom, the cloud of beer and smoke and grease, he heard someone playing Glowworm and recognized immediately the Don's florid glissandos, the tremors and the trills, the quavers and dips, the big purple chords rising, the mists, the Spanish moss the grape arbor in the moonlight, the sighs, the throbbing of the thrush. The Don sat all big and glittery at the keyboard in the rear of the deserted room in an iridescent silver jacket that picked up every speck of light from the 60-watt spotlight overhead. The silver threads went nicely with the Don's flowing bleached blonde hair and the gaudy rings on his fingers chosen for maximum sparkle. Six rings and six chunks of diamonds, a ruby-studded bolero tie, a silver satin shirt with pearl buttons, and silver and turquoise earrings. He looked much the worse for the wear, Figaro thought, as if he had been living in these clothes for a number of days, including some rainy ones. But he was full of beans as always. 
He told Figaro he would soon be back in New York, where a big recording contract was in the offing, a major label, large, sum of, large sums of cash that he was not at liberty to disclose. Here he rubbed his fingers together to suggest that heavy dough was involved. The people were secretive types, you know, said the Don. And you, how are you? Have you found a wife yet? Asked Figaro. The Don laughed, it was their old joke. Marriage looks very appealing until you're in the company of married people, and then the horrors of the institution cry out to you, said the Don. Marriage is for women, Figaro, ugly women. It makes no sense for men, it never did. The married guy has to have an airtight explanation for everything he does by himself. If he wants to go for a walk around the block alone, he has to invent an excuse for not taking his beloved with him. To get up out of his chair and to go into the kitchen and run a glass of tap water, he has to announce this to his wife, like a child in the third grade. Or else she will say, where are you going? To the kitchen? For a glass of tap water? Fine. Why can't you say so? Why do you always just wander away without saying a word? You wouldn't treat anybody else that way. How do I know if you're going to the kitchen or going to New Orleans for a week? And it would have been nice if you'd offered to bring me something from the kitchen. If you loved me, you'd think of these things. But no, you just get up and walk away. I could be sitting here dying and you'd never notice. And then she bursts into tears, grieving for herself and her future death. This is marriage, Figaro. A single guy can walk around without explaining it to anyone. He can also go to New Orleans. This gives a man a dignified feeling, knowing that you could, if you wanted to, drive somewhere. Or drive nowhere, just cruise around the top, soaking up rays and laying down rubber. Married guys can't go nowhere. There has to be a plan, a list of errands, a system, a destination. Alone, your life is intuitive, like poetry. With a woman, it's a form of bookkeeping. So, how long are you in town? Asked Figaro, trying to change the subject. But the Don had more to say. A home belongs to the woman, oldest woman inhabitant, no matter what. Every day, a man has to get her permission to come in to draw oxygen from the air, to keep his things in the closet. The permission is always conditional, and some of her rules are never explained. Some are even secret. No loitering, no unnecessary conversation, no putting things there, no whistling, no guests. We reserve the right to change the terms of this agreement without prior notice. These are kept for emergencies. And a married guy is responsible for everything, no matter what. Women, thanks to their having been oppressed all these years, are blameless, free as birds, and all the dirt they do is the result of premenstrual syndrome, or postmenstrual stress, or menopause, or emotional disempowerment by their fathers, or low expectations by their teachers, or latent unspoken sexual harassment in the workplace, or some other airy excuse. The guy alone is responsible for every day of marriage that is less than marvelous and meaningful. Why don't we ever make love anymore? That is the number two all-time women's question in the world. Number one is, why don't we ever talk to each other? Now there's a great conversational opener. You're ensconced on the couch, perusing the funny papers, sipping your hot chocolate, feeling mellow and beloved, and she plops down full of anger and uproar and says, why don't we ever talk to each other? Why do you treat me as if I don't exist? You take her hand. What do you want to talk about, my beloved? You and your utter lack of interest in communi communicating with me. That's what, she snaps, yanking her hand back. My love, light of my life. My interest in you is as vast as the Great Plains. Please, share with me what is in your heart so that we may draw close in the great duet of matrimony. But she didn't want to converse, of course. She only meant to strike a blow. Humph, she says, standing up. I know you. You were only saying that. This is marriage, Figaro, a man's constant struggle to maintain his buoyancy. Some of what you say, I suppose, is, tr is true, said Figaro. But a guy needs a wife, someone who cares if you've collapsed in the shower and your leg is broken. Well, your chances of collapsing in the shower are sharply improved by being married, said the Don. Helpless rage is a major cause of falls in the home. 
No, marriage is a disaster for a man. It cups him up and broils his spirit piece by piece until there's nothing left of him but the hair and the harness. An unhappy man with heavy eyelids appeared in the doorway to the lounge, hands on his hips, chewing a mouthful of peanuts. He appeared to be an owner or manager of some sort. You want a break right now, Giovanni, or is the piano busted? The Don turned with greatest disdain and said, oh, sigh, I thought it was you. I hired you as a piano player, Giovanni, not a philosopher. I'd like to hear less thinking and more tinkling, a word to the wise. The man turned and disappeared. The Don looked down at the keyboard, plunked a couple notes, got up from the bench, and motioned to a table in the corner. We can sit there, he said. A life without a woman is the lonesomest life I can imagine, Figaro said with a sigh. I would be miserable without Susanna. Life is lonesome, said the Don, and lonesome isn't bad compared to desperate. But of course a man should not live without women. Luckily, marriage is not a requirement. Nobody needs monogamy except the unenterprising. Figaro shook his head. The life of a libertine ends badly, he said. You get old, your teeth turn yellow, you smell like a mud, and you have to pay women just to look at you. Much better to marry, to be faithful, to build a deeper partnership that will hold together through the terrible storms of old age. My dear Figaro, seduction is an art to be learned, practiced, adapted, and improvised according to the situation. And like other arts, it will not desert you late in life. Seduction is a sweet story, and if the listener wants so much to hear it, then it is no lie. Seduction is a mutual endeavor in which I conspire with a woman to give her an opening to do what she wants without reminding her that this goes against her principles. A woman's principles and her desires are constantly at war, and if there were no one to seduce a woman, she would have to figure out how to do it herself. Her principles call for her to remain aloof and uninterested until she meets a man who makes her faint. Her desires are otherwise. She wants to say, that man, over there, unwrap him and send him over here so he can love me. She cannot say this, so I try to help her. I say, Zerlina, I would like to hold your hand for two minutes, and then you can shoot me, and I will die a happy man. She laughs, but she does not turn away. She rolls her eyes. She says, oh, fool. She gives me her hand. I say, the greatest tragedy is to be cut off from intimacy, from touch, which is the most human of languages, Zerlina, and the most honest. There is no lie in a touch, never. The language of the body is a language of the purest truth. She is amused. I put my other hand on her shoulder. She turns and leans against me. You're something, she says. Zerlina, I say. There's a bottle of champagne waiting on ice at the Olympia Hotel and a couple dozen oysters. When we get there, we'll order up a big salad in a wooden bowl with basil and spinach and fennel and cilantro and radicchio, and we'll have it with olive oil and vinegar and pepper and garlic. Then a steak tartare with chopped onions and an egg yolk. And then we'll undress quickly and without shame as adults and jump into the big bed and amuse each other as only adults can do. And afterward, we'll eat an omelet and then do it again. Her hand twitches in mine, and I guess that I have touched a chord. This is the best time of year for oysters, I say in a low voice. And one should never eat them without erotic plans for later. She tells me to be real, but even so, she is reaching for her purse, putting on her coat, checking her lipstick. You're outrageous, she says. And now we are almost to the hotel and then in the room, and she says, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. But she is, she is. A wonderful occasion, Figaro, the sort of evening that someday as you lie dying, you will remember and it will bring a smile to your lips. You slept with her, Zerlina? But she's married to Maseppo, said Figaro. I can't believe this. I may have slept with her, I may not have slept with her. I only mentioned her as an example. Zerlina, Marilyn, Marlene, what's the difference? A woman. Having an affair is not the same as marital happiness, said Figaro. You are right. Marital happiness is briefer, and it has a sword hanging over its head. The happiness in marriage is fitful, occasional. 
It is the pleasure one gets from the absence of pain of not conforming exactly to the wishes of your wife. The man with the heavy eyelids reappeared in the door, an envelope in his hand. Time to go, Giovanni, he said, setting his big hand on the table. You're out of here. You broke the deal. You're history. The job's over. Move him. The Don sneered. What a relief to get out of this mausoleum, he said. I am, he said, the greatest romantic pianist of all time. But a romantic pianist in Fargo, North Dakota, is like an all-star shortstop in Paris, not a priority item. Go to hell, said the man, and he stamped his foot on the floor. Figaro looked down. The man had hooves instead of shoes. The Don stood up. Gladly, he said, it would be better than looking at your ugly face. The man strode to the back door by the piano and opened it, and Figaro saw the orange glow of flames in the basement, fingers of flame licking the door sill. Stop, he cried. No, Giovanni, repent. He took the Don by the arm. It's not too late. Repent. The Don put a hand on Figaro's shoulder. Believe me, he said, it's easier to simply go. And compared to marriage, it isn't that bad. Farewell, mon ami. And he took off his great silver jacket and gave it to Figaro and walked to the stairs, put his hands on the door frame, and then, with a mighty cry, plunged down into the fiery abyss. Your hair smells of smoke, Susanna said to Figaro when he arrived at home. Where were you, in a bar? You stopped in a bar on your way home? I thought you had outgrown that by now. And what are you going to do with that hideous jacket? My gosh, you can put it in the garage. It reeks of shellfish. I don't want it in the house. Go on, take it out of here. So he did. He put the silver jacket on a hanger and hung it on a nail next to the rakes and shovels, and it stayed there for years. Twice she threw it in the trash, and twice he retrieved it. I, uh, chose that selection, which may have been a little bit odd to some of you guys, because when I was an undergraduate here at Ohio State, I was a music major, and we had to watch Don Giovanni. And for a non-opera fan, that was a long, long process. Um, and Garrison Keillor is a great American storyteller, and the way that he reframes the story of John Giovanni, and especially the way he weaves some of our modern misconceptions about marriage and what really gave me a kick. And uh, so the book is called The Book of Guys, and the author is Garrison Keillor. Thanks for listening to me. The book that I have is a book by Andy Andrews. Has anybody ever heard of The Traveler's Gift? The Traveler's Gift is about a story about a guy by the name of David Ponder. David Ponder uh, was a businessman married to his wife Ellen. Uh, Ellen was a school teacher. David Ponder is having some financial trouble. There's a few things that's going on there and so forth. And what uh, Andy Andrews is trying to explain in the book is how we can reach success, the seven decisions for personal success. How can that occur no matter which type of occupation that we have? student, teacher, uh, business world, athletic world. David Ponder has some decisions to make in his personal life. Decisions dealing with the fact that how he, financial decisions and so forth. So he is sent back in time and he is introduced to seven people. Starting with Harry Truman, Solomon, Anne Frank, Joshua Chang uh, Chamberlain, Abraham Lincoln, the Archangel, uh, Gabriel, 
all the way to Christopher Columbus. And I'm going to go to chapter 8 as we wrap up and read to you. And each person leaves with him. Here is one way that you can fulfill a, your way for personal success. So in chapter 8, he is with Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln says, if you are determined to win, you have to surround yourself with winners. Don't be discouraged by the people you might choose for your team who talk big but produce little. Grant is my 10th try, his 10th general that he had tried in three years of war or the Civil War. I just keep putting them in the boat to see who wants to paddle as hard as I do. So Ponder says, what will you do if, pause, when you win? Do you mean, where will I lead this nation? Yes, after the war, what will be your first priority? That is rather an easy question to answer. In fact, I have spent many hours in prayerful consideration of my response. The first morning after all hostilities cease, I will greet the day with a forgiving spirit. Forgiveness allows me to be an effective husband, to be an effective father, to be an effective friend, and a leader of this country. Confused, David asked, what does forgiveness have to do with being effective? Lincoln thought for a moment, a moment have you ever been so angry or upset with someone that, that all you could think of was that person and the horrible way you uh, have been treated? You think about him when you should be sleeping and all the things you should have said or would like to say come to mind. When you could be enjoying the evening with your family, your children. The person who offend you is receiving all of your energy. You feel as if you might explode. Leaning forward, he asked, have you ever felt this way? Yes, David nodded, I have. Okay, this, then the question was next, the statement next was, the secret of forgiveness, Lincoln responded, it is a secret that is hidden in plain sight. It costs nothing and is worth millions. It is available to everyone and used by few. If you harness the power of forgiveness, you will be reverent, sought after, wealthy. David looked puzzled. Just who is it that I am supposed to forgive? Lincoln's response was everyone. So from each chapter, each person gave David Ponder a particular gift. And the gift by Lincoln to David Ponder was the ability to forgive. 
And when you look at the quick facts on Abraham Lincoln, you know, president in 1860 sought to, uh, to uh, unify the nation uh, during the Civil War, okay? You will find out that I will greet this day with a forgiving spirit. The last part before we leave. For too long, every ounce of forgiveness I owe was locked away, hidden from view, waiting for me to bestow his precious presence upon some worthy person. At last, I found most people to be singularly unworthy of my valuable forgiveness. And since they were never asked for any, I kept it all for myself. Now, the forgiveness that I hold has sprouted inside my heart like a crippled seed yielding bitter fruit. No more. At this moment, my life has taken on a new hope. Of all the world's population, I am one of the few possessors of the secret. I now understand that forgiveness has value only when it is given away. By the simple act of granting forgiveness, I release the demons of the past from which I can do nothing and I create in myself a new heart and a new beginning. I will greet this day with a forgiving spirit. And so uh, each chapter, each person that he met from Harry Truman with bus stops here through Abraham Lincoln and Anne Frank, they gave him those qualities that he needed, those seven qualities for personal success. And I would just like to just finally conclude what are those seven qualities. The buck stops here. I will seek wisdom. I am a person of action. I have a decided heart. Today I will choose to be happy. Of course, Lincoln, I will greet this day with a forgiving spirit and I will persist without exception. Thank you very much for having us today. Thank you very much for allowing us to be here with your great audience. Thank you. Thank you for coming.